Hello, and welcome to another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast brought to you by Cheeky Scientist. I'm your host, Isaiah Hinkle, and today we have a special webinar with James Gould on troubleshooting your transition. Excellent webinar today. If you're interested in listening to the full interview, um, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association, where you can learn how to become an associate and get access to not only the full interviews uh, that we do, but also to our entire job search blueprint for PhDs and our PhD level private job referral network. Um, of course, you can listen to all of our podcasts on iTunes at any time. If you'd like our podcast delivered to your email inbox, as well as our free articles um, delivered to you when they come out, go to CheekyScientist.com, our homepage, and just sign up with your name and email at the bottom of that page. So once again, we are talking with James Gould uh, today on troubleshooting your transition. And we will jump in and get started now. Jim, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. I appreciate this opportunity to speak. And I just heard that my alma mater, U of L, has just gotten some NCAA sanctions for the basketball team. So I'm not quite proud of it right now. <laughs> Did they really? Yeah, they had to vacate a bunch of wins for from 2010 uh, to 2015, including wow. the national championship. But regardless, well, we'll leave that uh, out of the bio yeah. for yes. the next yeah. couple of years. <laughs> I'll take that off my Twitter bio too. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So thank you all for welcoming Jim. Uh, Jim. Really excited. So for those of you who have been through all the material um, in the training dashboard, you you know we, have, we always get a lot of feedback on Jim's previous webinar. It was about three years ago that we did an interview. Uh, it was an audio interview, but very, very insightful. Um, you know, things continue to change. We have lots of insights. We wanted to focus this webinar on really troubleshooting the things that come up the most as PhDs transition. Uh, Jim, more than anybody else, has experience in this area. So we, we have some questions that we've collated from you previously. We're going we're gonna to work through those, um, and then we will leave time for Q&A at the end, um, possibly during. So one of, the, one of the top questions that came in was that when a PhD tells you that he or she wants to transition into industry, uh, what's the first thing do you say? You know, they come to you, I want to get out of academia into industry. I want to at least pursue this option. What do you tell them, especially things that came up a lot of like depending on their stage of PhD, postdoc, background, et cetera? So one of the I, I, I hear this a lot. And one of the things I, I say all the time is um, make sure that you are running to something rather than running from something, you know, especially when you are reframing and, and even framing your experiences. Um, you're not running from academia. You're moving towards something in industry or another sector that that you're interested in and it sort of touches your core values. And the other thing I, I talk about is make sure that you are networking, continuing, continuing to network and building your network at all times. Mm. And, and, you know, network, 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 network. So that's, that's the, the, the three things that I say basically. It's good to hear somebody else saying that, right? You guys are sick of sick of us saying it, but Jim makes an important point. The first thing that he recommends is to network. The first thing that you should do is to network. A lot of us, you know, we, we can get stuck into our resumes or CVs, um, but really building up that network takes the longest and it's the most important thing. I also like what Jim said is, you know, it's not, you're not reacting out of fear. You know, you have to have your eyes open and really, you know, look at the data for where things are in academia and your chances of being a tenured professor. But what do you want to move towards? Now, we talk a lot about figuring out the professional lifestyle you want. 
where do you want to move towards? What's the professional lifestyle you want? You know, not I'll do anything but this. Uh, I think is, is the key takeaway there. Yeah. So moving towards you know pivoting into a positive because a lot of this comes from maybe a a space of negativity or even fear or you've come to a certain point saying this academic um, lifestyle or career choice is no longer for me, no longer tenable, or I've I've changed my interests and even my skills are, are broadening and you recognize that for what it is and then pivot into something more positive that is a better fit for you. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and so, okay, let's say that that rings true and, and they apply that. They start looking for where they want to go. They look forward. Um, they realize their academic skills can help them get into a job. How do you help them structure their efforts in terms of timelines like where they are currently you know if it's a first year versus i know when i went out there one time you said somebody came to you with a 18 years into their postdoc right how does why does this matter so you know you need to hopefully you have some time you know like i've I've said i've met postdocs literally the next day that was their last day of of postdocing and it's the first time they talked to me and i was still able to you know put some things into, into perspective and and basically say, please come back. I'm not going to kick you out of the office, you know, even though HMS is basically revoking all of your credentials. <laughs> but if you, if you come early enough and rec, you know, as soon as you sort of recognize that there is a potential for change or a potential for a trajectory, you know, uh, correction, if you want to say that, start seeking out advice, mentors, even peers, colleagues, Maybe even your faculty advisor. Uh, hopefully, you you've been cultivating that relationship from day one. Hopefully, if you're doing a postdoc or you know, if you're in graduate school, you are cultivating your faculty mentor as you know because they're they're going to be you know a, a refer a reference for you for several years afterwards. Even my current or for my current job, my PhD advisor was asked to be a reference. They, they reached out to him, even though it was several years after, and I, I did not want them to, to contact him because he, it was irrelevant at that point. But I had cultivated, hopefully, a good enough relationship where it was, it was fine for them to, to contact them. And, but he, he couldn't really speak about what I was transitioning into. Mm. That, that wasn't his experience. But, you know, making sure that you give yourself enough time and you have time, even though if, you know, if your timeline is months, weeks, or hopefully, you know, even a few years for you to, to get your feet wet, to learn the landscape, to learn the language of, of industry or the business of science or the administration of research, um, because that's one of the things that, that is difficult to do. You don't need another degree. You don't need specific extra training per se. You you ultimately need to understand how to translate what you've been taught and trained as a scientist. Translate sometimes literally translate the words and and skills to someone else doing the work and and hopefully going to hire you soon. Yeah. So and, and translating and transferable skills is is definitely something we're gonna we're gonna touch on. I. I really like the takeaway of, and this is something I know you, we talked about extensively in the last webinar too, is not waiting till right before you, your last day in a postdoc, right? Not waiting yeah. till right before your, you graduate with your PhD. 
um, that's probably one of the top things that you should do. And, and, and along those lines, helping PhDs kind of gauge how much time a job search takes, what time to spend on it. And I think the reason that obviously, you know, we, I mean, you did a couple of postdocs, right? And we've all done a PhD and been really busy, whether it's a thesis or papers you're working on. Balancing that with searching for a job is, is really hard. Um, if you're taking your job search seriously. So maybe on, on, on that end, what would you, how do you recommend PhDs structure their time, budget their time? What should they do? Yeah, thanks for bringing it back to your, your original question about these kinds of structuring time. It, it's very difficult to do it. You can't necessarily, or I'm not going to say, you need to do 20% on this, 15% on this, 55% on your research, so on and so forth. What you, the, the trick that I found that works for me as well as giving advice is that trying to integrate what you're doing with your research because you're ultimately, none of this should be compartmentalized. Your research life is not any different than your interview life, is not any different than your networking life, not any different really than your home life because you've been trained as a, as a scientist, as a researcher to solve problems using the scientific method. And it's basically just integrating one problem solving session after another. Um, Spending time, you need to spend a lot of time on your research because you're still being employed to do research while you're looking for a real job. The whole point of doing a postdoc is to get a job outside of your postdoc lab. Uh, most likely, you're not going to be hired as a faculty or a staff, um, uh, a, a staff researcher or, or so on and so forth because the postdoc is not sort of an end point. Hmm. It's, it's a jumping off point where you need to recognize that there are diverse career outcomes from that point and and integrating the job search integrating your research moving forward integrating networking within that the example i use in in my workshops is most of us when when we were in research and you included isaiah um we're almost required you know especially in graduate school a departmental uh seminar every week or every month or every couple weeks we were required, we had to take attendance to go to these um, seminars. And one of the things that I didn't do, but now I advise to do it, is you have to be there. It's part of the training. Even in postdoc, your lab's expected to go to the larger lab or departmental meeting. How many people in that room do you uh, introduce yourself to? How many people do you follow up with with the speaker? You know, do you sit with your lab mates or do you you know, integrate with, with other people that are already there for the same reason. That's, that's essentially networking. If you just meet someone else new, one person at a time. Mm. So integrating that, because that's part of your research training, integrating that type of networking into it, because you're not taking away from your lab time because you're expected to be somewhere else. You're not taking away from um, meeting and talking with your, your, your mentor or faculty member. You're actually reaching out and being visible in the department to other researchers, graduate students, postdocs, faculty, and even the speaker. Hmm. Very valuable information. Yeah, and, and that's something that it's great. It's always great when we give these academic <laughs> seminars or, or academic institutions to say, how many of you, have you met this person that's sitting three rows? Because there's always like a space of two seats yeah. between people. <laughs> have you met this person over here? Usually it's no. And for all of you that are still going to these types of seminars, there's many people in there you haven't met. And so one thing we always like to say to make it very practical is there's somebody at each seminar 
or somebody at your institution, your university, your floor, who's going to get a job before you in industry. And if you would just talk to them one time, it would have been so much easier to reach out and say hi or set up an informational interview just one time. Because that kind of trust that you establish with an in-person connection uh, is so much more powerful than reaching out to somebody you never talked to after the fact. Uh, A simple conversation, like Jim said, like uh, just introduce yourself, talk about the seminar, integrate it all. It doesn't have to be separate. Like your job search and what you're doing in the lab can be uh, the same thing. Um, There's definitely somebody in your network, even at your university, who's going to be able to help you get a job. If it's not them directly, they're going to know somebody who's working at a company you're interested in. So great advice. So let's say you're, you're integrating things well and you're learning to network and you're, you, know, you're, you went from being interested in industry to being serious about it. And now you're starting to you know, be afraid that you're throwing away your research. You move, let's say you move away from the lab, which is something you know, we both kind of have done, right? Like how do you become okay with that? How do you, and this goes back to kind of transferable skills too. How, how do you reconcile that, especially for those postdocs who come to you and say, Am I a failure because I'm leaving academia? Right? What do you say? So one of the the first things I say is they're not going to revoke your PhD. You're always going to have that. Um, you know, you, you could say on on the window here on the the webinar window it says James Gold PhD. I'm no longer doing research, but I'm still solving problems for other people, solving administrative problems that I'm interested in, and I was trained to do that as a graduate student and a postdoc. They gave me a PhD. Because I solved a specific problem by basically killing um, kidney cells with high glucose and seeing what happens with TGF beta secretion. But doing that process taught me how to solve problems, whether they're scientific or not. Um, so I'm just doing what I was trained to do. I'm just not doing at doing at the bench anymore. Mm. And, and that's the perspective I bring, you know, to my job and, and try to convey to others. But they're thinking about transitioning and, and thinking that it would be very difficult to move back into academia or that once I move away from the cocoon of academia, it's going to be much more difficult and I, I might fail. Mm. So when that happens, I say, you've been failing in the laboratory for how many, how many of your experiments have worked uh, percentage wise? And it would probably 10, maybe 30%. So you're used to failure already. 1%. Yeah, 1%. For me, it was 1%. <laughs> For me. Um, so if, yeah, if I can get one Western block to work, with, uh, it was a good week. Yeah. Um, so you're used to failure. You're, you're in, you know, in your postdoc and your, your graduate training, you're in a black box already. And you're constantly fighting to, you know, sort of get out of that box or, move that box into the light and all you're doing in transitioning is the same thing but it's now you're experimenting sort of on yourself rather than on cells or or dna or rna so Mm -hmm. just changing that perspective that you're always experimenting Uh, you're always going to be a scientist you're always going to have those core values of the scientific method and the training that you got you know in in five to six years of of graduate school and you know two to six years of of postdoc they're not going to take your PhD away. No, that, that's a great takeaway. And on that note, you, you've kind of brought it up a couple of times, these other skills that you have that can be applied outside of academia, right? So I, want to just, I don't want to go too, too far off script here, but I'm just curious, with your perspective, 
you've transitioned. You're, you know, what are some of the, you mentioned problem solving a few times. Mm-hmm. What other transferable skills have you noticed that PhDs have? Like if a PhD comes to you or a postdoc and says, hey, I can't get a job in industry. Like they want all these skills. I don't have any of these skills. All I know how to do is push a pipette mm-hmm. or code a program. What do you tell them? What are, some, what are examples you give them? So, um, yeah, I, I sometimes bring out, you know, have you done all of your research all by yourself? Mm. Uh, have you, you know, needed something that you couldn't do and you had to bring someone else in? Now you have a collaboration skills or teamwork skills. Um, have you worked in a, a team where you weren't the sort of um, de facto leader, but you still manage the whole process? Now your teamwork management matrix environment, so on and so forth. Have you actually published a paper? Yes, I, you know, I have not me personally, but they say, yeah, I have five first author or, you know, a couple first author and actually have a senior author. And like, oh, you know how to project manage now because mm-hmm. you, you've done the actual science. You've communicated with, uh, the team because it's never one author on a paper. Uh, you've coordinated the entire writing process, the submission process, maybe even communicated with the editor of the, of the journal you're submitting with, submitting to. And you've negotiated with the faculty authors. You've negotiated author order. You may have even mentored half the people on the paper. So you now have mentoring, supervisory experience, and you've managed the entire process. Hmm. Yeah, great examples. And, and I think sometimes we, we elevate transferable skills as some, you know, some word that's only taught in MBA programs, right? And it's not. It's, uh, yeah. you know teamwork and uh, project management, these kind of things. Yeah. So that's, that's very useful. So what, what they want to hear usually, and you can, you, know, you can correct me or even add on, is they want to know that your science is um, top-notch, but they also want to know that you can do that science in a team with other actual human beings. And you know, that they want to be able to work with you for more than you know, a couple minutes per interaction. Right. No, and nobody, we always say nobody likes, you know, nobody wants to hire the awkward PhD that's going to stand in the corner and that can't talk to anybody and it's going to disrupt their team. Especially for those, I mean, who are you talking to initially? You're talking to hiring managers, usually without a PhD. Their one job is to make sure that you can have a functional conversation, um, which in itself is a transferable skill. Uh, so, so going back to other types of troubleshooting, other types of problems that come up, I want to ask kind of a general question just in terms of motivation. A job search, like you said, there can be a lot of failure with it. In the lab, it seems to be, or you know, with our PhD work, technical work, it seems to be easy to overcome failure and try again. But when you start entering a job search and it's, uh, you, there's a lot of things that need to be de- demystified, you're not used to, you get a rejection, nobody's responding to your resumes, no, you, know, you have a phone screen, nobody responds, interviews. How do you, how do you stay motivated? So there, there's a couple of different ways to, to go about it. And one, you have to realize it's going to take time for you to get good at job searching. It's going to take time to revise your application materials. It's going to take time to you know, learn how to interview well. Um, it's going to take time to actually convince yourself that you are, you know, of your worth in transition. Um, and then realize once you have these, these materials in hand, you don't have to do this alone. You know, you have resources like me at whatever institution, you know, the TT Scientist Association, we have you specifically. 
you have hopefully a village to raise you in your job search and in your transition. You know, I, I can't tell you how many resume CVs, cover letters, research plans that I've looked over and, and helped people, um, not just with that actual document, but bring out more information just by having a conversation over this document. Uh, so yes, realize it takes time to do it. It takes time to do it well. It takes time to convince yourself that you are doing it well. And, you know, don't hesitate to reach out because once you, you write things down, and you, know, you say this in your, your workshop, once you write something down physically, you know, as a application material, it becomes real. And then once you share it with somebody for feedback, it's that much more powerful for you to continue to, to make it better. Absolutely. And, you know, f this can be in any type of forum, right? We, you know, it can be in the, it can be in a private group. It can be reaching out by phone, LinkedIn, doesn't matter, but reaching out for support is good because you communicate the problem and this helps you realize what the actual problem is and it helps you find solutions too. A lot of you read other people's transition stories and you learn things. That's great, but you want to get out there and ask questions of your own. It kind of externalize some of the struggles that you're having. It will help you see where the opportunities are that you might be missing. Absolutely. Yeah, some of the, the other issues that, that come across uh, my desk per se is there, you know, there's a lot of graduate students and postdocs, lots of PhDs that are not native speakers of English. That's not their first language. And the way they communicate may come across as awkward or, you know, usually it's a use or misuse of articles. And it looks like writing mistakes, especially if you're writing these things down. People are much more critical of the written word than the spoken word. Mm -hmm. So if you have a trusted person that you can go to and have them proofread emails mm -hmm. or proofread some of these materials before you send them out, it's going to be very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, asking, for, you know, writing out a networking script. We talk about that a lot and having somebody go through it can help because I uh, like what Jim said, they're much more critical of the written word. It's just a fact, right? If you have a couple of words that are there, you're not going to take them seriously. And then there's, I mean, there's actual peer-reviewed studies and management journals on this. If they see a resume with, you know, two added somewhere that it shouldn't be, it goes in the trash. Yeah. So that's great advice. Yeah. What are, okay, so let's, let's talk about some of the big issues, like what, I mean, you, you mentioned like not networking and stuff, but what are some of the other issues that have come across your desk that have really kept PhDs from transitioning? I've kept them from transitioning. Um, let me see. They, they tend to be a bit unprepared. And we talked about this last time a couple years ago. And it's one of those things where, you know, they know academia. They, they mostly know the ins and outs, the expectations. And once they decide to, to transition, they don't know what they don't know. You know, it's not so much a mistake. It doesn't really keep them from transitioning, but it is a barrier. They're unprepared and they're not really sure what they need to be preparing for. Um, but the general advice to, to get over that is one, remember your training because you're used to amb you know, ambiguity in, in your research. Why not? ambiguity in your job search and how do you fight through that you're always sort of working toward a goal and realizing you need to be flexible again i'm always going back to your scientific training has has prepared you to make transitions has prepared you to do uh, what's necessary 
to 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 make the move out of postdoc, mm-hmm. even into academia if you're if you continue into it. Just sort of go back to what you've been trained to do, work in that ambiguity, embrace it, and then be flexible. Reach out to other people. Um, but understand and and you know, I, I say just throw out networking, but you need to informational interview. And that's more of a I would say more of a professional networking rather than just sort of, you know, networking in, in its sense of that you're just speaking with people and connecting with people. So if you have a, a good idea of what to expect because you spoke with somebody who's in a position that you aspire to, you're that much more prepared on the keywords to use, the, the key people to maybe even further reach out to, or just realize that actually you have a very cool job, you're paid well, but I don't want to do what you do. And that, you know, addition by subtraction is, is very helpful sometimes too. Mm. Yeah, I I think that's great advice. Um, when it comes to getting getting stuck, uh, support always helps. Um, you mentioned a couple of things like networking, writing resumes, interviewing. So I want to I want to go off of that into the different areas that you can put your efforts and maybe and you mentioned informational interviews too. So if you had to look at the entire job search process, where should most of your efforts be? for each segment, let's say, um, and then where should the least amount of your efforts be? And we like to talk a lot about sequence. I think a lot of PhDs just kind of try everything. They don't really know where, like what, what do you want to do first, yeah. second, third? Where do you want to spend your time? It, it, it's so funny how quickly we scientists, even former scientists, uh, want to abandon that sort of scientific method, that protocol approach, huh. you know, and we end up doing sort of the hodgepodge thing or, you know, I have... Somebody told me or I heard this might work, (laughs) but but that's not how you approach your science. So why would you approach it uh, as your job search? Um, I would say first and foremost, you need to be connecting with people, speaking with people, networking, but not compartmentalizing that networking. And I'm talking networking and talking with people from your family, your um, significant other's family, the people, you know, where you drop your kids off at school. Uh, at church or at the library, but also people you pass in the hallway every day. You know who's in the next lab next to you. Yes. Do you know what they do? Um, you know, who's in? Who's down the hall? Who's upstairs? I mean, who's downstairs? Who's you know? So you need to be interacting. Do you know the administrators in your department? That was one thing that was very helpful for me because they're the gatekeepers. And anytime I needed something, you know, a meeting or a favor. I knew who to go to. I didn't go to the faculty. I didn't go to the chair of the department. I went to his administrator or his or her administrator. And mm-hmm. I got things done. So first and foremost, you should always be communicating and talking and connecting with people professionally, personally, virtually, wherever. The, the other thing you should be doing, you should be practicing talking, practicing interviewing, doing the informational interview. Because the only way you're going to get good at interviewing is by interviewing. Uh, it's one of those things where you can do mock interview after mock interview. You can prepare. You can have, um, you know, a, a list of a hundred common behavioral questions or a hundred common academic questions, and you can have, you know, certain answers and certain strategies how to answer them. But unless you're in the moment, getting visual feedback uh, from the interviewer or you know, realizing you're you're heading off on a tangent, 
you know, getting better at communicating, getting better at reading the room, getting better at situational awareness as well as self-awareness and emotional awareness and making sort of that personal connection. Mm. Um, the other thing that you need to be doing is also keeping your application materials up to date. Even if you're not on the market, if you're not looking right now, you still need to be keeping track of everything you're doing. Um, whether it's you're on a committee, whether it's a, a research accomplishment, a publication. Um, on my, I, if people ask me how often I update my resume, I, I do about once a month now because um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm adding to it that much faster. Um, as you say, I become famous, but I, I don't know if I would. <laughs> Necessarily you have to do when you're famous, I guess. You got to uh, update it monthly. You, you just have to keep it up to date, um, whether that's on paper or at LinkedIn. And then when an opportunity arises. Thank you for joining us for another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast. If you're interested in attending one of these interviews live, or if you're interested in getting access to the full interview, including all of the background materials and show notes, Go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association and learn how to become a associate. Uh, you can get on the wait list for the next association enrollment period there and learn full details about the program. It's a program specifically designed to help PhDs transition uh, into top industry positions. If you would like to see receive more of these interview highlights uh, via our podcast, uh, sent directly to your email, go to cheekyscientist.com and email subscribe under where it says start here. If you haven't already, you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Um, until next week, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.